This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Smart Art's the name of the program. Richard Watts with you here. And joining me in the studio is the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival, Jonathan Holloway, who normally, as I mentioned at the start of the show, festival directors often only come in when they have a program to spruik. But given that I've met Jonathan a couple of times previously in Perth and in Hobart and elsewhere, I thought, well, I already know him. It's a good chance to get him in, get him to talk and introduce him to Melbourne and vice versa. So, Jonathan, welcome to Triple R. Uh, good morning, Richard. So... In terms of being a festival director, you've done a couple of festivals now. In You've done four festivals in Perth. Before that, you've done festivals in the UK. You've also been a, uh, a theatre director. So you've got a broad range of skills. But what is it about the job of being a festival director that intrigues you? So I, I started out really directing theatre and putting work together and programming things and I've always put gigs on and I love that moment when uh, the curtain rises or, or the, well, I haven't seen a curtain rise in years, but the moment when, when the audience, that, that, that crackle of energy is just before it starts. Um, and so I, I directed theatre for a bunch of years and I actually realised that um, there's, there's much more to it that I love, which is the bit that goes way in advance and the bit that goes far afterwards. So my, my father was a music journalist and I would go with him to see concerts in Sheffield uh, when I was seven or eight or nine and then I'd go with him to his uh, his office to the to the um, to the newsroom and watch him type up the review and then when I got a bit older I'd watch them lay out the actual uh, in the days when they laid out uh, letters on uh, on on uh, uh, in order to print the paper and and I realized that so much happened before and after the performance to make that intense moment. So I kind of fell in love with the whole industry. And then I directed theatre and one day I was doing that, I was enjoying it, but I realised that I wanted a bigger canvas, really, as, a, as an artist and as a creator. So um, festivals are fantastic because they are, uh, they can go anywhere they want, um, obviously as long as it's the place that's got the name in the title and is paying the wages. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and they can do, they can work across all of, all of society and actually genuinely make a difference. Can they really work across all of society? Because for a lot of people, the the arts, and particularly at a major international arts festival, are often not necessarily inaccessible, but not something that's necessarily part of their life that they would buy into. Uh, particularly if it's uh, tickets for a show, whether the tickets might be seventy five, ninety five, one hundred and twenty five dollars. Obviously, we can't make uh, no festival director, no festival can make every event accessible to everyone. But it's about the spread bet. It's about the, the sheer breadth of it. So, what's the work in the streets? What's the free work? What are the stories? What are the talks? But also, what are, what are the events uh, across each art form that mean that all of society has the possible possibility to either participate, or witness, or or have their voice and stories heard and told and so yes i think you do exist for the widest range of people i think it's easy to get the arts literate audience to a festival uh, or, or indeed to anything obviously i don't think it's easy it's incredibly difficult and we've all uh, succeeded and, and and failed many times but um that idea that um you can find work which will start where the audience is and take them on a journey so outdoor work and free work and exhibitions and visual arts and the stories you can tell through using a festival that allows people to see their city and their lives and their communities differently. How do you see Melbourne? It's really interesting and really complex. I, I, I love it. It was it was the one of the places I, I most wanted to be in the world and 
there's an argument that says I would say that, wouldn't I? But um, like any touring rock star who goes, Melbourne, you're our best audience yet. But you know what? People have said to me a lot when I've been travelling, even when I wasn't coming here or didn't know I would be here, that Melbourne is their favourite audience yet. I've heard that from a lot of rock stars and lots of people. It's uh, there's an old joke which is uh, too long to tell now, but the punchline is, but this time I mean it. And uh, I mean, I, I spent 13 years in London, and. And then I've been in, in, in Norwich, which is the east of England, and latterly in Perth. And Melbourne is one of those cities that really actually works on a civic level and on a cultural level. And it works in terms of flow and the way people move around and use it. Nowhere is perfect, but it does have a sense that there is a civic awareness and, and a, an energy here that you get in, that you do get in the Londons and, and, and New Yorks and Berlins of the world. It, 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 the fact that six months ago, the, there was an announcement that Border Force were going to check visas outside Flinders Street Station, and thousands of people went straight into the street and said, no, we don't accept that. And then it changed. It didn't happen. I, 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 don't, I look around the world, I see virtually nowhere that protest works. I see virtually nowhere that people are having these discussions and going out and seeing absolutely everything and, and joining with everything and talking about everything in a city that hasn't stripped away all of its history and all of its sense of the land on which we live and the and and, and nowadays the increased sense of the indigenous communities uh, who's who's a land on which we are based and 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 then the sort of 19th century early 20th century boom period it, it, you can see all of those levels of society and and uh, there's been no victory for one part of society everything lives alongside everything else now, one of the things that you were known for uh, when you were the artistic director of Perth Festival is the outdoor spectacles that you brought to the city. So your very first year, you filled the city with uh, with acrobat acrobatic angels and tons of feathers. Uh, your final year, you did the giants, which I had the pleasure of uh, being flown over to see. And I've as I'd, I'd said at the time, I have never seen a city so activated. Floods of people running from city block to, across to the next city block to see the giants coming around again. They'd seen them once, they wanted to see it more. So those kind of grand events and, and, uh, and big moments were perhaps uh, emblematic of some of your programming. Melbourne is a trickier city to do that kind of scale work in, given that, for example, streets are full of tram lines and it usually rains if you decide to do something free and outdoors in a park. So does that does the, the unique uh, layout of Melbourne and the weather conditions, those kind of things, how much will they influence what you program? Oh, the, they'll influence it hugely. And uh, and now I'm going to now I'm going to say something that is is going to be uh, incredibly arrogant and and also. Wrong, but I think the job of a festival director is not dissimilar to that of the job of of a doctor or a surgeon. You deal with what's in front of you. You you don't wish it was different. You don't uh, sit there and go, well, look. Uh, uh, actually, I was going to say the metaphor far too far. I'm going to leave that metaphor exactly where it sits. But you you. Perth and Melbourne could not be more different. I, I actually think uh, the journey from Perth to Melbourne was all, has almost been a bigger shift than the, the journey from Norwich to Perth in terms of culture, in terms of the way that everyone uses the city, in terms of the arts. You talk about uh, in Perth the Giants had people running from place to place to see the Giants. Well, they're doing that anyway in Melbourne. They're doing that to see Fola. They're doing that to see uh, the Comedy Festival. There's already a... They're doing it because in any given evening people will want to fit in a quick trip to a museum 
uh, and a show and a meal and then a drink in a great cocktail bar. And it's not they're going to do one or the other. It's not that people who are going to either do the arts or do sports here. People will go uh, and see a, a great football game and then go and have a meal or go and see a concert or go to, go to the theatre. So actually, Melbourne already has that sense of activation. So in a way, that's, that's not the job here. I'm not quite sure what the job here is yet, but I don't have to tell you until August. I'm fine. I've got, I've got a little bit of time. But I have got a sense that um, there is a... It, here, the, it's not, it won't be about that sense of activation in exactly that way, but I do want to explore the city and find things that people have forgotten are there. I, I said to someone who lives in uh, Sydney, who's also a journalist recently... Um, that part of the job of a festival is to allow a city to fall back in love with itself. And this ge- journalist uh, said, uh, I don't think Melbourne ever fell out of love with itself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I quite like that. But to just intensify how we all feel about this place. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Jonathan Holloway, who's the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival. He'll be doing, uh, this year's festival will be his first, and then he'll, uh, what, another three years after that? Uh, it's open-ended at the moment, doesn't okay. it? We've so I don't know. Cool. Uh, we'll, we'll find out what happens. But one of the things that I've been thinking about this week, uh, I've been looking at what's been going on over at the Adelaide Fringe and the concerns over there about the size of the festival, and then that's echoed some concerns that happened over at the Perth Fringe, uh, Fringe World earlier this year, Edinburgh Fringe last year, there were concerns as well. And I wonder to what degree has the art sector become perhaps over-committed, perhaps even addicted to the notion of growth and ticket sales as defining traits of success as opposed to focusing on art? That is a great question. Um, I mean, I've, I've used the stats as much as anyone in the past and, 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 and probably will again in the future, but actually I think it's true that it's about moments of experience. It's about moments that change people or affect people or or enlighten people or uplift them. I don't think the stats are that interesting except when you're trying to get funding or newspaper column inches. Uh, I think what's happened in Adelaide and Perth is really interesting and, and ironically the chief executive of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is the biggest festival in the world uh, by quite a way, is now our new executive director, Kath Mainland. And so I was talking to her about it yesterday and, and and she was saying, first of all, those discussions are perennial. And I'm imagining that, that once upon a time, three people sat around a campfire and told stories. And then when the sixth person arrived, people said, oh, for goodness sake, do we need more storytelling campfire people? <laughs> um, however, I do also question whether, I mean, the stats and the quantity matter when we're making the argument that the arts are central to, to society. And that's great. But if it's not superb and beautiful... A hundred people sat in a room listening to one person tell a story about depression uh, last evening was astonishing. And... um and nobody went out going, well, there were this many people there or that many things. Everyone went out thinking, that changed the way I see the world just a little bit. Uh, also, I mean, the, the difference between, I think, a curated festival like an international festival and a fringe festival is we have the power within a curated festival to not allow um, oversaturation if we think that's going to happen because it's the difference between um, a, a great newspaper and the internet. Uh, the internet has absolutely everything there, whereas a curated festival has the choices and the selections, the knowledge of who's reading it. It says these people have got this much time and want to see these ideas. So the work has been done in advance. And that's that's why 
curated international festivals work. On the other hand, who could live without the internet? Uh, and that's also a tr- the tremendous uh, joy and randomness of going out there to make that great discovery. I guess if I was a, an economist, I'd say the market will write itself. If if you are the 50 artists too many, maybe that next year you won't be there and maybe that is the nature of, uh, of supply and demand. But I'm not an economist. The guy earlier was. He was great. <laughs> he, it was a good conversation listening to The Breakfasters earlier. Uh, Jonathan has also just referenced uh, a show that's currently on at the Malthouse Theatre. It opened last night, Every Brilliant Thing. Uh, it's a, a lovely companion piece in many ways to the other show that's on at the Malthouse, which is Picnic and Hanging Rock. One is uh, kind of a, a dark show, which really, really kind of controlled and focused, and the other is kind of a very... It's a very heart show. So you've got head and heart at the Malthouse at the moment. Uh, I recommend recommend both. But to, to come back to Jonathan, is it true you used to do stand-up comedy before you became a theatre director? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, but thankfully, no more. And um, I mean, I, uh, I probably use elements of it, like microphones and sometimes as an audience, but I've tried to... I, uh, yes, yes, I did. I, that's the short answer, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd like to apologise to anyone who was there. <laughs> um, luckily, not many people were, and, uh, and I don't think anybody remembers it, but, uh, but yes, briefly. So, what we've heard so far on, on uh, this conversation, uh, you've talked about watching your dad write reviews and the, and the process that goes into the creation and the development and the presentation of art. We've talked about protest and the layers of Melbourne's history, so with, and, and now a little bit of comedy as well. So I'm starting to, I think, get a a stronger sense of who you are and what will shape your festival. But let's cut to the heart of it. Why does art matter? Why do you want good art? What do you seek from it? I I want art to allow me to see the world in a way I can't already see it. I I want art to make me glad that I live and and that the world is how it is. It can be transcendent, it can be uplifting, it can be... Um, horrifying and sad. Uh, I mean, some of it is there because it, it is about the sheer pleasure of being alive. Who could believe that any of us could do any of the things we do? Um, I mean, the basic process of watching you sit there and take a CD out of a CD case and put it into a machine. Um, how did that happen? Um, I'm, uh, I'm not asking that in a theological way. I'm asking that in a cultural and creative way. And then on the other hand, how do we explore... Um, depression or suicide or how do we explore um, murder and and death how do we explore uh, love the answer is to talk uh, art allows us to discuss it whilst not in the pain of living it and so um, it's easier to discuss all those things when watching or just after watching Medea than whilst in the middle of actually experiencing those things so I think the arts has the ability to to affect every single thing we touch. When people say, I'm not into the arts, and then they switch the television on, I laugh. Uh, It's one of the things that always, at those extended family Christmas lunches or something, when somebody says, oh, the arts, it's a waste of time. I I always like to say, what was the last TV show you watched? (laughs) Or or the last film you went to see? Or the last CD you put on? Or whatever, or or downloaded, whatever it may be. Or the plate you served your food on. Um, in absolutely everything we touch has aesthetic and has ideas and has creativity. And at the, but at the heart of all of it has to be artists. It has to be the people who make this work. Because um, the, the life of an artist, and, and, and actually as a festival director, I work a lot with artists. I believe there's some artistry in what I do, and, and, and I at moments define as an artist. But the life of that's the thing you do 
day in and day out. It's it is tremendously emotionally and uh, intellectually and often physically complex, and. Um, there's, there's, when it's done well, there's nothing easy or simple about it. So how do we create the environment in which um, artists can do things? Because nobody can name all of the popes uh, that came out of the Medici family. Uh, none of us... I, mean, I learned them once, there were four of them. But uh, the Medici family also uh, commissioned uh, so many astonishing artists, and we can name them, although it's early in the morning, and I'm not going to try that either. Uh, but but the art lives forever, whereas the political power moves on. And and whilst we're not seeking a Woody Allen style, um, uh, what did he say? He said, well, I, w- I want to achieve immortality, not, uh, not through my work but by not dying. But it, it, it's not that. It is about just how do, we, how do we see the world in a different way. We'll get the chance to see uh, more of how Jonathan Holloway sees the world in a different way when the Melbourne Festival program is launched later in the year. The festival this year running from the 6th to the 23rd of October. The program will be announced uh, in detail in August and I'm sure we'll have a, a couple of drip feed announcements uh, just to keep the marketing machine rolling in the coming Joining months when we'll the find out the first one or two sneak preview events that are on the festival. Claire for more Cunningham, info, www.scottishartist.com. Uh, uh, Thanks for coming into Triple R. Uh, the Thanks. festival Catch later in the live year. art at uh, North Melbourne Town Hall performing her work, Give Me a Reason to Live. Claire, welcome to Triple R. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks. Very well, very well indeed. Good to have you here. Now, um, I got to catch up with one of your shows that you performed over at the Perth International Arts Festival. You also performed uh, Give Me a Reason to Live yeah. over there, so didn't get to see that one. So uh, um, glad it's come to Melbourne. It gives more people a chance to see it. What's your experience of Australia been like so far? Uh, wonderful, yeah. It's been lovely, uh, lovely and warm. Uh, coming from Glasgow, that's quite <laughs> it's quite noticeably different. Uh, yeah, it's been really really interesting, uh, and yeah, very fun. And yeah, we met a lot of extraordinary and lovely people. So. Because you were artist in residence at the Perth International Arts Festival, yeah. which, uh, as well as presenting works, you did I think a, a week long series of masterclasses and workshops with yeah. people. Now you're. Um, uh, best known perhaps as somebody who dances on her crutches yep. um, so uh, with a, a lived experience of disability but I know the artists you were working with in uh, your workshop series artists both with and without a disability yep. what tell us about that experience and that process um, well it was brilliant for me um, I I had I don't teach very often usually um, I kind of taught one day workshops and master classes every so often but um, we had five days and yeah people had travelled quite far and it was yeah it was extraordinary um, it was a, a beautiful mix of people and I think for me the kind of one of the first things about it was the fact that it put all these people together in the same room, regardless of whatever I did. Um, I was a re- I was a reason that meant that these people all got in a room together, and uh, particularly as as individuals who were coming into dance who might identify as being disabled. I think in order for people to be able to connect with other artists, uh, non-disabled artists, and create, uh, yeah, just begin to build connections with each other to know about what each other are doing to support each other um, and to yeah to start to gradually readdress the balance of power and the, the knowledge at the moment for most uh, dance artists uh, is held with held by non-disabled individuals so to begin to kind of create networks between them 
uh, that was one of the, the first things, really, more than anything I even could give them. Uh, but we spent, yeah, we spent a lot of time looking at stuff. Not so much, I don't like teach movements or choreography, um, but I tended to be interested in creating a space that was about, um, yeah, questions about what it means to perform and the decision to perform and that inherently it's a, it's, it's a lot to do with a, a, a choice to be seen um, and permission to be seen and giving that permission and, um, yeah, questions around that, that making that choice as a performer. Tell us about your own decision to perform because you were initially uh, a singer, a vocalist, before yeah. you became a, a dance artist. So what encouraged that transition? Ooh, it was kind of an accident, really. <laughs> I mean, I went... I seemed to go very naturally into singing from a very young age. That was something I gravitated towards. It's, it kind of felt like, yeah, that's my natural place somehow, is, 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 uh, or my natural expression was through song. Um, but in a quite a mercenary way, really, when I was oh, coming up in 30, when I was about 27, um, yeah, I was just in that place of going, oh, I'm not really working enough just as a singer and how do I make myself more employable as a performer at that stage I was very much kind of saw myself as a, a performer I was working in theatre but mostly sort of as a singer but but not consistently working um, so I began to look at ways I could expand my skills into different things so yeah, acting um, and then I began to look at aerial work was a, quite, a thing that came across my radar uh, so like trapeze work things like that and and I kind of had a question about whether that might be a direction for me just because the crutches, I'd used them since I was 14, so they had created a lot of strength, a lot of upper body strength in particular. And there was a sort of, oh, okay, well, I'm stuck with this strength because I need the crutches, therefore, um, can I actually use it as a performer? And that made me curious about aerial work and I started exploring that, which led me by accident into working in dance because uh, I met a, a choreographer that kind of yeah, really kind of sparked um, a curiosity in me about how I might move and how, yeah, how I might work with the crutches, which I hadn't ever really considered before. And it became a sort of, you know, just an obsession, a geek-like fascination of like, oh, what's possible between, what is the potential of this body and the crutches and what can it do that's specific to this body? And um, yeah, and it's just been a, a lot of play really since... <laughs> Play, which though has a um, a real beauty to it, from what I've, as I say, from what I've seen of your work, having only seen one show in Perth, but um, uh, it was fascinating t for me, I guess, because so often when I see dance, it's the same sort of body always on stage. It's it's uh, with no offence intended to any of my <laughs> choreographer and dancer friends. Uh, it's a, a very very slender yeah. kind of uh, often all of the same yeah. height as well in the same shows. So, so yeah. there's almost a, a there's a uniform like quality. Yeah. To dance Young, often. skinny, mostly white, normative bodies yeah. Yeah. are pretty much predominantly what's in dance. It's, yeah. I would say in Australia that the, the, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot much more stronger representation of non-white people yeah, in the dance great. sector, yeah, yeah. which is great. So, um, it's yeah, one of the few areas from the UK. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, it's, <laughs> one, it, it's one of the few areas in the performing arts yeah. where those kind of boundaries at least that's, have started to break yeah, down. But the boundaries exciting. of disability, uh, obviously in Australia, have yeah. yet to be broken down. And age, age, I think, is one uniformly 
depressing aspect about dance is that I literally just spoke to somebody, I don't know if he's your next guest, who, yeah, was a dancer, and then at 33 he said, oh, well, you know, yet too old for it. And I'm just like, oh, I find that heartbreaking that people, yeah, think that they should stop professionally dancing in their 30s because... Injury often for for dancers in their 30s. Yeah, Yeah. which is horrendous. But also just the fact that, like, I'd much rather watch older dancers because all that knowledge and all that experience of knowing their bodies by that, you know, these that age, it's just like, that's what fascinates me. I'm not, no offence to the 20-somethings, but they, yeah. Are you at, are you at <laughs> Still a point, just technique that you're watching a lot of the time. Are you at a point where you know everything that your body is capable of or are you still pushing no, yourself as a dancer? That will continually change. I mean, and that's, that's the, that's what's interesting to me. I mean, certainly give me a reason to live the piece that I'm doing at the moment was a a conscious sort of curiosity to how trying to push my body physically feeling like I hadn't really explored the boundaries of like what it was to to physically push my body quite hard in terms of stamina or extremity of movement um yeah and kind of guilt tripping myself and going oh come on work a bit harder but also yeah genuinely a curiosity about what does this body do when it's pushed quite hard um and what do we what do i what do we define by a body being pushed and how is that different you know for different bodies so there is there is simply a score in the piece where i i stand without my crutches for as long as i can and and that does push my body to a place that for for somebody else might not be considered physically um difficult or uh, or yeah or extreme but that yeah, that sort of question was a real curiosity for me of like how far could I could I push, and what does that do? Now, one of the other things uh, that I'm intrigued by with Give Me a Reason to Live, uh, the work you're doing here for the Festival of Live Art uh, at North Melbourne Town Hall, um, drawing inspiration from the works of Hieronymus Bosch, I believe. Yeah, Who, it, I, and I think it was just kind of the anniversary of his birth or something this year. I just re- recall reading about the, yeah. the, the t- small town he was in in Belgium kind of assembled all of his, so many of his existing yeah. works and I was like, oh, that would have been beautiful. But yeah, it's still going. So it's the whole of this year it yeah. runs. Yeah. There. So it's, yeah. So this is the, yeah, it's the anniversary, it's the 500th anniversary of his death. Nobody quite knows when he was born. Yeah. There's, there's all that sort of, nobody, yeah, not much records, but tw- yeah. So, 16 was when he died. So uh, tell us about expl- being inspired by, by, Bosch, by to, Bosch to make this work. Um, well, yeah, it was an invitation to me rather than... It wasn't something that I had chosen to pursue. I was invited to be part of a project um, which was related to this 500th anniversary and um, dan- five dance agencies in Europe each invited a choreographer to work on the project and we would each make a work in response. So we worked together, but we weren't required to make a piece together, which was very refreshing. And we spent um, a number of weeks in different cities across Europe looking at uh, paintings by Bosch and visiting his hometown and meeting art historians and, um, yeah, lots of different... It was really fascinating, lots of people from kind of different backgrounds and walks of life kind of casting light on on his life and the context that he was working in and the time and yeah uh, we each made made a work in response and uh, it was really fascinating to see that we could all be exposed to the same information but make completely different pieces from each other um, but give me a reason to live was partly triggered 
for me by uh, one of the academics that spoke to us showed us uh, a sheet of sketches, so studies for figures that might go into paintings at some point, um, which were all beggars, and all the beggars were cripples, and all the cripples were beggars. Uh, so, um, and that's... And I became really fascinated by that as a disabled person. I kind of got really kind of fascinated by these disabled individuals and and these extraordinary physicalities, but also the the opinion of the academic, which was very much just his opinion, but um, the idea that they might represent sin in the paintings. Um, and he also further speculated they might represent greed, which really fascinated me. Um, and so that became a kind of starting point for me in terms of the direction that the work went in. Well, which is an interesting connection with Guide Gods, the work that you did in Perth in which disability and sin have, were, were yeah. also clearly connected. <laughs> so, you know, the, is, it, is disability punishment from the gods or uh, uh, karma for, for something in, in your yeah. past life? You also just used the phrase extraordinary uh, physicality and I wanted to pick up on that because watching your, uh, in, in Guide Gods, for example, watching you descend a set of stairs on your crutches with a kind of balancing a cup of tea, I was just, the, the control that you, you have of your body, I found fascinating and it, it touches on uh, the notion of aesthetic access we hear a lot about access for people with disability uh, and that's often literally physical access it's kind of yeah. like is there a ramp is there an elevator lift those kind of issues yeah. um, but the notion of aesthetic access is one that in, mm. in fascinates me because as an arts writer and journalist I'm constantly looking for a new aesthetic uh, a new challenge something that will expand my ideas of what what is possible in the arts and that's certainly something that mm. um, artists with disabilities seem to be bringing into the arena a new way to look at the body, a new way to think about how the body moves, a new way to think of what the body is capable of. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's some... As, as, the, as the work by disabled artists begins to kind of get um, higher-profile platforms, I think there is the opportunity to see that there is, um, there is extraordinary potential in the creativity of disability, actually, um, and the reality that the lived experience of disability does it does require a, quite a creative response to living generally and a lot of problem solving and a different different perspectives on how you view the world and how you traverse it literally, um, which kind of yeah for artists in in some ways can be a gift. I mean, it gives you in some ways quite an, an original perspective on on different things and. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of interesting work, certainly in the UK that I know of, of of, of people really exploring how to creatively um, bring issues of access within to into their performance work. So rather than it being this sort of bolt on to a performance and and to get really get and also just to kind of encourage uh, performance makers and venues to to consider actually. Yeah, the creativity that access can offer rather than it being this thing that you just add on on a Thursday afternoon for deaf audiences because, you know, they wouldn't be working, would they? You know, of course, you know, just these ridiculous notions of, of access that are really inaccessible in ways. So, yeah, there's been a lot of real... Yeah, and to to use it actually as a creative tool, you know, the idea... So the, the show that you saw, Guide Gods, really looking at... We integrated audio description... Li um, 
within the work. So everybody hears the audio description. It's part of the soundtrack. It's not this thing that's just accessed by a few people in a corner with headsets. Everybody hears it, but in a show that looks at religion, to have a voice describing what you're doing... And uh, in some ways predicting what you're doing or guiding, controlling what you were doing. Yeah, Yeah. so there's this whole other sort of... For me, that was a really interesting possibility to go, well, yeah, there's this voice of God potential or prophecy or or of the narration of acts, you know, and we also had a a captioner live on stage who's literally transcribing the text that's being spoken live and recorded. And to me, yeah, for me, that was an access issue, but also just the idea of, well, it's she is taking down the word, she is transcribing the actions of another person, which in reality is what all Holy Scripture is. You know, it's one human being's version of what they think another human being has said and she makes mistakes and you literally see it and 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 also the power of the word, the power of language and the hierarchy of language then is also for me an issue within the work. It, it's another layer that people can take or leave if they want. But the number of people that's that watch the subtitles when I'm talking as well, you know, and I know my accent's strong, but <laughs> people that I know that are, are not they are able to hear me and I'm four feet away from them, but they still watch the subtitles. And I'm not offended by that. I find it really fascinating by our I, I like the subtitles as well because you process information differently, differently when you yeah. read it. So that's another reason it's there for me in the show. It's, but another, it, it's a, the, a layering of the, yeah. of the work. Yeah. So it, it, does, it, it does open up the access for people, but it, one, it makes it visible, which is really important to me. Like Everybody that comes to that show sees that the captioning is there. They have to they have to exist with a, somebody typing on a keyboard literally beside them on a show and go, okay, well, this is, you have to accept this. This is what somebody needs. So it's about also what we question as tolerance and, and these sorts of things as well. But it makes these things visible for people that maybe haven't considered um, what it is to need audio description or captioning or the fact that everybody, I made a space that everybody sits equally so there isn't a wheelchair people in wheelchairs section. It's like everybody sits in wherever they want, you know. Claire Cunningham's Give Me a Reason to Live, uh, which I haven't seen and uh, I (laughs) urge you to book tickets for, um, is on at the North Melbourne Town Hall tonight and tomorrow night at 7pm. Just two performances left. There was one show last night. Uh, North Melbourne Town Hall, uh, corner of Queensbury and Errol Street, North Melbourne, as part of the Festival of Live Art. Jump on to fola.com.au for more info, including booking details. Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Cheers, thanks. Joining me in the studio now... Uh, Jonathan Holmesley. Um, I should have asked you, Jonathan, how I double how I pronounced your surname before I turned the microphone on. Yeah, and you have the microphone on, and you totally pronounced it correctly. So, gold Holmesley. star for you. Good, good. Okay, I, I always worry that I'm going to hideously mispronounce somebody's name. So, you're curated and presenting an event called Sanctuary, which is on at the testing ground. That strange semi wasteland, semi kind of art space located behind Art Centre Melbourne, um, and an, an opportunity to explore connection in a digital age, and but also to explore solitude and, and related themes. So, tell us a little bit more about Sanctuary. Well, Sanctuary for me is a performance diptych. Um, I was raised a Roman Catholic, and I always was fascinated with triptychs and diptychs, and I was curious like how can I make that into a performance or how is it going to be kind of duality of things um, so to me obviously we're all going through struggles with intimacy social media you wrote about arts hub a few weeks ago a lot of us are interested about it Fold is on 
a lot of us, that's on the forefront of our minds. Um, so to me, Sanctuary is the failure and success of having a cell phone. Um, the film portion with Samantha Brucesi, if you've seen Cat Empire Wolf, she's the face of that video. She is the most beautiful dancer um, with Luke Mersado and Lila Gao. We created a film kind of exploring the failure of your phone, the anxiety of your phone drowning into the phone. And that's in the shipping container. Um, on opening night this Saturday at sunset, nature's best lighting stay. Who needs to pay for a lighting designer when the universe gives me a lighting stay? <laughs> Thanks, universe. Um, we'll be doing an 18-person performance, kind of exploring the success of the phone or how can we use our phone in a positive way to be mindful? Because even though we all talk about the negatives, there are actually positives. We, you know, I can I can drive here and I know where I'm going. It's uh, interesting <laughs> that you say that because I, I've over the last couple of years, I've seen a few theatre works involving phones and often asking their audience to, to use the phone in the show. And they're often focused on the negative aspects, the intrusiveness of, of a mobile phone. or um, And it, I think we always do this around te- new technology when when record players were introduced or radios or newspapers. Oh, they're going to destroy the moral fabric of society, whatever. We, we initially associate anxiety with them, but then we start to, to draw out the positives of connection through through technology and so forth as well. So I'm glad to see you're tapping into that side of things. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in terms of wanting to create uh, this I guess series of works, this connected series of works that you're presenting. How long has it kind of? How long has this been bubbling away in your mind? Um, it's been bubbling away for a fair bit. Um, was the city of Maribyrnong artists in residence last year? I did a work called Vessel, um, exploring the seven chakras, and I went through that, and that kind of gave me an awa- um, awakening or enlightenment, rather. Just kind of gave me a certain perspective of how I perceived art and how I perceived myself. And also, when I made that work, I realized the work was getting less dancing, for lack of a better word. It was about experience. So I feel like bringing it into a white space or the shades of beige space in testing grounds is much more appropriate for having someone to exchange that dialogue. Like, I don't want you to sit there, but also I don't want people to pay. Like, I understand we need to make ends meet and we need um, ticketing, but I really like an exhibition where it actually gets to be free, so it's fully accessible for everyone. Um, which is what brought me to testing grounds. Yeah, which is a, a central, accessible uh, place. Uh, and I really like the idea of work presented in a public space. So instead of having to leave a public space and go into a gallery or pay to get into a, a theatre or something, actually creating and presenting work for free in a, in a public area, which a casual passerby walking along city road <laughs> might stop and go, oh, what's on? I'll, I'll wander in. Somebody standing above looking down at the art centre will have a different view and may also be attracted to go down. Yeah, I think that's just the best way. I think it's because before the internet, before we had other things, people had to actually converge at one point to discuss an idea or they would actually meet at one point um, to, you know, finally have a, you know, group chats or whatever to do what we need to do. So I feel like that's something I really miss in my life and I feel like maybe other people miss it too. So having Sanctuary is kind of a, an avenue for us to have that old school meetup, which shouldn't be so old school anymore. And I mean, the word sanctuary has become suddenly much more in vogue politically as well, given that churches around the country have said they will offer sanctuary. <laughs> which is a, a very medieval concept in some yeah. ways, um, that they will offer sanctuary to, to refugees. So it's interesting to see how such uh, a phrase has, has 
suddenly become part of our our modern parlance again. Yeah. And then also our phones, also our sanctuary as well. Like we seem to seek such solace in it. And um, even just like because I te- um, I'm really passionate about anatomy and kinesiology. Just seeing how many people damage that little bit just near your shoulder blades just from looking down. Like the way our posture is, the way our bodies are shifting because the way we treat our phone as a sanctuary is also I found that really um, you can really visually see it across everyone. Yeah. Um, so well, let's get everyone to stand up, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> I also found uh, I, I realized for just myself recently when I was over at the Adelaide Festival, I was at a, a function, uh, the opening event of the festival. I didn't know anybody in the room at first, so I was just standing there constantly looking at my phone because it's kind of like, oh no, I look busy. I'm not standing here alone by myself in a corner. I, I'm doing something. I'm Facebook, Twitter, whatever. It's <laughs> interesting that again that another form of refuge uh, you can isolate yourself from the world by choice through the phone as well. And then there's this strange paradigm because we can isolate ourselves but we can also reconnect ourselves so if you get to come along on Saturday we actually use FaceTime and Snapchat to actually have duets across the space because testing grounds are just so large. I walked into that space and Joseph who you know is facilitating testing grounds is an absolute godsend he's absolutely amazing um and i was just in the space and i was like what do i do it's two thousand square meters how do we get to interact across the room so that's actually our phone can be used in a positive way to connect um and then so therefore people can interact and and, and such jonathan how many performers have you asked to participate in Central? so i have i believe it's off the top of my head i have 18 but i have a few more who might be joining in so we might be up to 25 um there is a group meditation we are um manifesting ancestral energy in the space um my improvisational score for testing grounds there's been so many exhibitions i wanted to do an archaeological dig at the space i kind of want to dig around see what was there and of course i want to acknowledge everyone that's come before us so um i've asked some of my dear yogis to bring more yogis along and we're doing a group meditation in the work as well. There's about nine vignettes that all happen simultaneously um, so people can walk around, rove around. If, um, so one of the vignettes, there will be a group meditation. So I think there's a few more joining us. And if you want to join us, you can um, hit me up on my website and we can you can join the group meditation as well. Everyone's welcome. What's your website? Uh, it's just jonathanhomesy.com. So it's Jonathan with an A and Homesy is H-O-M-S as in sugar E-Y. Say it just like my grandmother. jonathanhomesy.com. So if you'd like to check out some more work now also as part of sanctuary so you've got um this cast of dancers and yoga practitioners (laughs) and and people can join in as we've just heard and a film so it's a for a work that is exploring i guess peace and solace and connection and intimacy there's a hell of a lot of (laughs) complex work that's gone on to to bring it all together yeah definitely i think it's because we kind of have to search for intimacy now so i feel like when you watch it zoomed out it may not feel necessarily intimate but when you actually get to go up and intimately approach each one you will find the intimacy there which is the best part and it's all happening at the at testing ground, which is um, uh, literally just next that kind of corner vacant <laughs> block next door to the Australian Ballet Centre. You may have driven past it. You may have seen work there presented there in the park. You may have been to a party there, uh, and just behind the art centre. So it's officially at one to twenty three City Road. Now. What's the the light like there? Because you've just talked about natural lighting. How much natural light does that space get? It's sunlight. Will the the sun magically cut through between the buildings to bathe it all in a golden glow? Or what's the yeah? So um, basically, because there's little nooks and crannies between the buildings, and Joseph, being the encyclopedia of information he is, he let me know which avenues of like light become between two buildings. So if the universe lines up with me well, and so far this year it has, so I'm going to touch wood. It's going to keep that. 
let going. Um, there is a little pane between about two meters wide between the Eureka Tower and the Mantra Hotel. Where the sun should just set, and I have a dancer there, so I'm hoping that the universe is on my side. Well, let's hope it's a, a clear day, no clouds, and we get that Stonehenge-like moment of magic as, yeah. the, as the light. And I think through. also everything's quite serendipitous, um, so I kind of just I'm just trusting destiny to alight it all. And if it was different, it was just meant to be that way as well. So if people want to experience sanctuary, uh, uh, it's all kicking off from this Saturday, this Saturday at seven o'clock, and the performance that sunset. Sunset, I believe, courtesy of Google, said 7.37. So we'll see how we go. But um, it's around that time the performance starts. And then people can hang out. And it's dog-friendly. It's kid-friendly. It's um, everything's, you know, family-appropriate. So bring everyone along. And I also love dogs. So more dogs, the merrier. The more dogs, the merrier. So bring the dogs and uh, meditate. Maybe the dogs can as well. Who knows? Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It sounds like it's going to be a really intriguing evening. And you're intriguing as well. Thank you so much, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.